seated, and if you have your Bible, then please turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we'll be picking up where we left off two weeks ago, the last time that we opened up to Romans. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. This is the summary of the entire book of Romans. I need to switch microphones. There we go. This is the summary of the entire book of Romans in two verses. And so we will continue to think about these verses for quite a while, especially the summary of the first 11 chapters of Romans. But it says this in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we're looking today where we left off at the last phrase of verse 16, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and down to the end of verse 17, the righteous shall live by faith. What we have taught here is the beautiful truth that God saves sinners, and God has always saved sinners in the same way, and he continues to do it. This is hard to wrap our minds around sometimes because God has unfolded his plan of salvation throughout history in the way that he's been working with human beings. Ever since Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, God announced how it was that he was going to save sinners, and it was through the seed of the woman, this prediction of Christ in Genesis 3.15, that this one would come out of the offspring of the woman who would have his heel crushed by Satan, but would himself crush Satan's head. It's predicted, it is given right there in the beginning of the Old Testament. It's all the way through, and it has always been the same. The way that God saves sinners is by faith in Jesus Christ. Before Jesus came, people didn't know his name. There was a lot that they didn't understand about exactly how this would happen. And now that Jesus has come, we know his name, and we understand a lot more about how this has happened, but it's always been the same way. It has always been by faith, by the gospel, and it is the same gospel, and it's very simple. It is the righteous shall live by faith. What is the gospel? As this is what is being spoken of here in these verses, the power of God to salvation is the gospel. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, the gospel is summarized by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, I want to remind you of this gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the basic thing of it, that we who are sinners needing to be right with a holy God can be right with this holy God not because of what we have done, but because what God has done. That Christ, the Son of God, who lived perfectly and righteously, died a sinner's death on the cross in our place for our sins, just as the Scriptures said. Not a new thing, but as the Scriptures always said that he was buried, and then on the third day he rose from the dead. And it's by faith in that Jesus, faith in this Christ who has died for our sins and risen from the dead, that we are saved. That's a very simple way to put the gospel, that we, are, we have a holy God, sinful man, Christ is the solution, and faith is the way that we are saved. And what is that faith? Well, Hebrews says that it is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There is one and only one way of salvation, and it is by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. Michael read for us from Hebrews 11 earlier. I wish that I could have told them to read the entire chapter of Hebrews 11, but it's just too long. Maybe we should just do that sometime to see how we take it. Maybe not. But one of my favorite verses in Hebrews 11 is 11.7 about Noah. Remember Noah and the ark? It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You think of Noah out there, in the middle of this landlocked territory, building a giant boat, everybody laughing at him, and he's saying, This is the only way to be saved. 
And everybody around saying, what in the world are you talking about? Look, we're in the middle of the land. There's not even any rain. What's wrong with you, Noah? But do you know what he was doing? He was exercising his faith. He believed God. He believed what God had said to him, this warning. I am going to flood the whole earth because of how deeply it pains my heart to see the sin of mankind. I'm I'm paraphrasing there. And Noah and his family believed that God in the ark, it was the only way of salvation, and it represents Christ. It represents Christ. And it's always been the only way of salvation, and it's still the only way of salvation, is to have faith. And by that faith, he didn't just escape that physical flood, but it said that by that faith, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He was counted as right in God's sight by believing. So that's what we have in these verses, and that's what is going to be explained throughout most of the book of Romans, is that there is one way of salvation, and it's by faith in Jesus Christ, and it's the same for everybody. Everybody needs it. That's what's going to be explained in the rest of chapter 1 all the way to verse 20 of chapter 3, is explaining how deeply everybody needs the gospel, because we are lost sinners who really, really need the grace of Christ. And he's going to explain that it's found in Jesus, that it is by faith, that it is to Jews and Gentiles, and it's all summarized here. And if you're following along on the back of your bulletin, I want you to see, and I want you to see not just on the back of your bulletin, but at the end of verse 16, that it is the same gospel and the same path of salvation for Jews and for Gentiles. For Jews and for Gentiles. It says... As it said, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and he says, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, I am aware that more and more there are people who think that the word Jew is an offensive word, which I find a little bit strange, but I've just got to say, I'm I'm going to use that word because it's what's used here in the Bible, and it is the way that Paul himself describes himself. He is in no way anti-Semitic. In fact, he describes himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, trained as a Pharisee in the school of Gamaliel. This Paul, as he speaks of his fellow Jewish people, uh, he, he describes them as those that he loves, those that if he could possibly even give up his own soul for them to be saved, that he would. And so I'm not too bothered about using the words that Paul uses here. But he says to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. This is the same gospel for all nations, for all nations. Now, there's a common dodge to the gospel that people use. There's a lot of common dodges that people use for the gospel. All kinds of ways that sinful human hearts want to dodge the idea that they need to be saved from their sins. One of those is, well... That gospel that you're preaching, it sounds like something that's good for you. It sounds like something that is for your kind of people. It sounds like something that you grew up with, and that was your culture, and that's pretty good, but I'm, I'm a different kind of people. You hear, hear this all the time in different ways. People will say, oh, well, you grew up in a Baptist church? Well, I, I grew up Catholic. And you hear this, you hear, oh, well, you want to tell me about Jesus? Well, I'm, I'm Jewish. Actually, somebody told me that this week, as a matter of fact. And I love it when people tell me that. When I, when I go to tell them about Jesus and I say, well, I'm Jewish. What they mean is, stop talking to me, that's not for me. But I love to tell them, guess what? Guess what Romans 1.16 says? It says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. There's a common misconception that's floating around out there, and there's actually been various forms of theology over the last hundred years or so, especially within dispensationalism, that would say, well, we don't have to worry too much about the salvation of the Jews. This is a misunderstanding that plays off of things like Uh, like Romans 11, just misunderstandings of it, where it says, well, all Israel will be saved, not understanding what that means. And there are some who actually, actually teach that you don't need to share the gospel with those who are among the Jewish people because God will save them 
by what they call the gospel of the kingdom as opposed to the gospel of grace that they say is for the Gentiles. Now, in these extreme forms, they would even chop up the New Testament. They would say, these certain books of the Bible are for Jews, and these certain books of the Bible are for Gentiles. And that doesn't happen very much anymore. But you need to know this. If you've come across that way of thinking, it is false, and it is unloving to our Jewish neighbors. What the Bible says is that everybody who has or is or ever will be saved, is saved in the same way, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says, is to the Jew first. It's to the Jew first. Now, Jesus, when he was speaking to some of the Jewish leaders in John 8, they had some excuses for why they did not like him. Jesus came, literally the Son of God, the Messiah, standing there, the very God who spoke creation into being, the very God who spoke the Ten Commandments to Moses and all Israel from the top of Mount Sinai. There he is, standing there in the flesh, in front of those who claim to love God, claim to be children of Abraham, and they hate him. And they want to kill him. This is not saying that every Jewish person wants to kill Jesus. That is not what I am saying. But these certainly did, and they eventually actually did kill him. But they had two excuses for why they didn't love him. One was, Abraham is our father. And the other was, God is our father. And here's how Jesus answers this. It says, they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are not doing, or excuse me, he says, you are doing what your father did. You know what he's telling them? He's telling them that our spiritual lineage before God is not the same thing as our physical lineage before God. He is saying, despite the fact that you are descended from Abraham and part of this ethnically Jewish people, circumcised on the eighth day, trained up leaders within the Jewish people, he's saying to these leaders, he says, you have a different father. You have a different father. How do they explain that? How, how, do they, how do they respond? Well, they say, well, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not from my own accord, but he sent me. You see, what we have in the scriptures is that, that if you love the true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you will love Jesus because he is that God. If you are a child of Abraham, it is not ultimately by physical lineage. It is by the faith of Abraham, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus would go on to say, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. Abraham rejoiced. And so, well, who who is it that Jesus saves? It's those who have faith in Jesus. Who is it that God saves? It is those who have faith in Jesus. In Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. To to reject Jesus is to reject God. Jesus is the one that God has sent to save sinners, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Peter announced the same thing when he was preaching to the Jewish leaders, the very same ones who had sent Jesus to the cross. In Acts chapter 4, he says this, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Guys, you need to believe the gospel and you need to preach the gospel. Whether you are in Matawan or in Lakewood, you need to preach the same gospel. 
whether you are taking a mission trip to Kuwait or to Uganda or to Jerusalem, you need to preach the same gospel. It is this gospel and only this gospel that is to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, which means to everybody else too. And not just a particular kind of Gentile, not just to British people of, people of British lineage and not to people of Italian lineage or something like that, but he said earlier just a couple of verses ago, to Greeks and to barbarians, this is the same gospel for everybody of all time. But why does he say not just to Jews and to Gentiles, or not just to Jews and to Greeks, but why does he say to the Jew first? Well, here's the answer. It says back in in Romans, uh, same chapter, verse 1 and 2, he says, this gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You hear that? It's not a new gospel. This is the same gospel that was preached to to, to the Jewish people throughout the scriptures that's there attested for us from Genesis to Malachi all the way through. Same gospel. It's been made much clearer now that Christ has come, and it's what it says in Romans 9. It says that they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He says, this is why it's to the Jew first, is because God used this nation in order to reveal himself, to reveal his covenants, to reveal his grace, and to bring about in real time and space and history the particular person of Jesus Christ, God becoming flesh, and he used the Jewish people to do that. And he says to the Jew first, look, Jesus came. And Jesus came in order that he might die for the people, it says in Romans 11. And not for the people only, but also to the children of God who are scattered abroad. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why is this so commonly rejected? Well, 1 Corinthians 1 says that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Guys, you need to accept the gospel. Don't say to yourself, I am not the kind of person who this is for. Don't say to yourself, this is just for my parents, and I'll be respectful for a while, and then I'll find my own way. No. The power of God to salvation is the gospel through faith in Jesus. Don't say to yourself, well, it's just for this kind of people, and maybe I'll check it out for a little while, and we'll see how I can do better. Maybe there's some other system out there that that I'll like a little more. Well, those systems lead to destruction, every one of them. There's one and only one way of salvation for each and every human being, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith in the gospel, faith in Christ. You need to tell the gospel to people, too. No matter what kind of people they are, no matter whether you say, well, I don't think that this person was, maybe that's not really so much for them. Yes, it is. Yes, it absolutely is. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. One, one final thing just to mention about that to Jews and Gentiles and the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. A, a lot of that's going to be covered um, as we keep going in the book of Romans. But there is a movement that has become really common Um, where there's this idea that there ought to be Jewish churches as opposed to Gentile churches. And you see this in different places in New Jersey, and there's there's even famous authors in New Jersey. I'm not going to name their names uh, because their books are terrible, um, who who have this kind of view. And and they have this idea, well, we're going to set up a, a Jewish church where we observe the Jewish holidays. We do all this kind of stuff. Well, this church will be for Jewish celebration of Christ. Well, the way that the Bible describes this is that Christ in his blood has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. He has made us both one. He has made peace in Christ. 
And so we're not called to split up into a Jewish church over here and a Gentile church over here or any other classification of human beings, maybe by language, just because we can't understand each other unless we speak the same language, but that's about it. And, and, and he puts us together by faith in Christ. If you want to, uh, to dig a little deeper on that, there is a book in our book nook by Baruch Mayoz, who came here a couple of years ago and preached to us, uh, who was a Reformed Baptist pastor in Israel for many years. Uh, it's called Come Let Us Reason Together, and really, really recommend that book if you're trying to figure out uh, what's the deal with all of these Jewish-looking churches that are around and the divisions that would be set up between Jew and Gentile in Christ. So, so we have the same gospel for both Jews and Gentiles. And secondly, you need to know that this gospel that saves anyone is a gospel about God's righteousness. We get here to verse 17. It says, for in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. Now, when we see righteousness, you need to know this. I'm going I'm to teach you a little bit about words, Okay. When you're in your Bible and you see the word righteous, you connect that to the idea of being right. Okay? That's, that's what it means. Being right. God is the ultimate one who is right, who is righteous. And then, whenever you see the word just or justice or justified, it can be confusing, but those all come from the exact same root word as right or righteousness. So all of this stuff goes together in the Bible. The idea of being righteous, being just, the justice of God, justification. Justification is being counted as right with God. All of that comes together, and Paul is saying that is central to the good news that we celebrate. As he says, herein is revealed, made plain, made clear, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Now, there's a couple of ways that you could take that. Because God being righteous, on the one hand, is a terrifying thing. God is a righteous judge. That righteousness language, that's courtroom language. That's you're going to stand in the court of the Lord Jesus. He is the one who will judge nations. He says in in John 5 that the Father has given all judgment to me. And he will stand and he will judge the nations and he will divide all mankind into the sheep and the goats. And the goats, he says in Matthew 25, are going to be those who stand up and try to justify themselves. Who say right in the face of Jesus, when did we ever see you hungry and not feed you? When did we ever see you in prison and not visit you? Surely we did all the things that were required. And he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And cast them into the lake of fire. The sheep, on the other hand, it's really interesting what it says about them. They're going to stand and say, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? I don't know, I don't remember when I ever did that. When did I ever see you naked and clothe you? When did I ever see you in prison and and visit you? And Jesus will say, as much as you did it to the least of these, my brother, and you did it also to me, and he will tell them, enter into paradise. Guys, when we think about the righteousness of God, this is one of the things that we need to know, is that God is a righteous judge, which is good. It'd be terrifying if he weren't a righteous judge. If he were just going to judge on a whim based on how he felt that day or what he had for breakfast. God has a righteous law by which he will judge us who are sinners. And that is a scary thing. The bad news there is there's nothing you can do to escape God's righteous judgment against you which would cast you into hell. The wages of sin is death and we are all sinners. We are all sinners. So why is this gospel, why is this good news? Well, it's because he's not just talking about the fact that God is righteous. He's talking about the fact that he makes human beings counted as righteous in his sight. Here's the gospel. The gospel is that the righteous judge 
who requires us to be completely righteous or you can't go to heaven. The judge who requires righteousness provides to us the righteousness that he requires. He gives it, as it says in Romans 5, 17, as a free gift of righteousness. That's what it's talking about here when it says the righteousness of God is revealed. It's a righteousness that belongs to God that he gives to us, not based on what we've done, but based on our faith. Or I should say, maybe not even based on our faith, by way of our faith that he gives to us too. Here's, here's what happened with Martin Luther. Okay, This was the year 1519. And Luther describes what happened as he was lecturing on the book of Romans as a monk, as a scholar of the New Testament, as someone who anybody looking at him would have considered him to be a righteous man, he was standing condemned before God until he came to understand Romans 1.17. Let's hear what he says. He says, For I hated that word, the righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. And I said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. And thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. What he says here is that he understood Romans 1.17 in the way that he had been taught in the Roman Catholic Church to understand it. What he had been taught here is the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel by which he understood God's judgment against sinners is made even worse by the fact that Jesus came. That's what he thought this meant. Why would he think that? Well, you look at the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, it's very, very common within um, Protestant liberalism to claim that the Sermon on the Mount is the place where we go rather than to the gospel. You know what the Sermon on the Mount does? Now, what Jesus does there is he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, whoever hates his brother in his heart shall be guilty of murder. And Jesus is right. And Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if anyone looks after a woman with lustful intent in his heart, he shall be guilty of adultery. This is why Luther thought, the gospel is condemning me more and more. He thought to himself, Jesus came and just preached more and more law. Jesus showed that no matter how righteous I am on the outside as a monk, that God is still going to get me for what's in my heart. And he hated God because of this. He didn't realize that what Jesus was doing was Jesus was setting us up to see you absolutely cannot stand righteous before God unless someone else does it for you. That's what Jesus was setting up, and that's what Luther came to understand, and he came to understand it from this verse. He says, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Oh, I love that. He gave heed to the context of the words. Instead of just thinking to himself, this is how I've always been taught it, he said, I'm going to look at the context. How does this flow in what Paul actually says? And here's what he says. Namely, the words, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. 
There I began to understand that the righteousness of God that is, uh, that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning, the righteousness of God revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And Luther says, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Guys, this is the heart of the gospel. This is what you need to know. The righteousness of God revealed as good news, as gospel. The only reason it's good news is because God grants his righteousness as a free gift to sinners. If we were to try to stand righteous before God by our own works, we'd be doomed. If we tried to stand righteous before God by claiming to have good intentions for our works, he knows our intentions, we'd be doomed. What we can do instead, though, is we can stand righteous before God and live because he has given us the free gift of his righteousness. What this is called is imputed righteousness. Imputation. That means on the ledger of debt versus... uh, On the ledgers of our debt, what God does is he crosses out our sin and he counts us as paid for He crosses it out. He not only counts us as paid for, he counts us as possessing the riches of Christ and the adoption of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. He also lived an entire righteous life for us. That's his active obedience, his righteousness. When we have faith in Christ, it is counted by God as ours. We possess it. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's an exchange there, that God's righteousness is counted to us by faith, even as our sin was counted to Jesus. This is not a righteousness of our own. We call this an alien righteousness. It's a weird righteousness in a way. It's a righteousness that we're not used to because it's not something that we have lived in. It's not something that we've done in our hearts. It is God's righteousness. This is not man's righteousness. You've got to see that in verse 17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's gospel reveals God's righteousness which is given to man. If you tried to stand in the courtroom of Christ by your own righteousness, by any kind of man righteousness, you would fall. And you know what? That goes for everybody. It says in Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law does not bring us about salvation. It brings knowledge of sin. I was thinking of some godly, godly people who have been at this church in the past. And it's amazing. Because when we think of ourselves, we, we kind of know some things about our hearts. And it's, it's easy to say, yeah, yeah, I'm not perfect. But then you look at other people who have been just fantastic examples of godliness and faith throughout the years. You think of the, the founding pastor of this church, Job Gaskill. I've gotten to read a few of the journal entries that, that he left when he was here. Just a godly man. But you know what? Job Gaskell, he did not get justified in God's sight by works of the law, by his godliness. Frank Slater, who was pastor a few years later, and his name is on one of those windows back there. In fact, some of his family's names are on those windows back there, too pastored the church here for 22 years in the late 1800s and grew the church in numbers and in respect and in all kinds of ways, and everybody loved him, and guess what? He was not justified by the law in the sight of God. we got some more people whose names are up on the windows, Mary Fay and Ida Fay Levering right behind Katrina back there. 
They were missionaries that this church sent out to India in the late 1800s. And you would say to yourself, what amazing godly women. And we praise God for what they did. But they were not justified by works of the law. It was not their righteousness that could ever earn a place with God. Think about Garrett Detweiler, who was pastor here in the 1940s. And in 1943, he took a leave of absence from this church in order to go and to be a chaplain in the U.S. Army. And he went over to Europe, and he was there, and actually, as he was ministering the gospel among the soldiers, also helped to free Nazi concentration camps at the end of his time. You think, wow, what an incredible thing. What, what mighty works that he did, and we praise God for those. But did, Der- did Garrett Detweiler stand justified before God in his own righteousness? Absolutely not. And neither did Lewis Kissenweather. Neither does Daniel Wigginton, neither does Billy Graham, neither does Augustine or Luther or Calvin or Martin Lloyd-Jones or Spurgeon or any of those people that you can think of. Guys, 100%, every single human being, what we need, the only way to be right with God is to have God's righteousness counted to our account, to look to Jesus in faith, to have the righteousness of Christ that we trust in and not our own righteousness. Here's what Paul said about himself. He said that in his former way of life, as he was being trained up in, uh, in faithful Judaism, he says that as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He says this in Philippians 3, 6. But then he says that his goal is to throw that away that he is willing to absolutely trample upon what he once counted as his righteous life, to count it as garbage, so that he could gain Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what the Bible says. It depends on faith in Christ and not on our own righteousness. He says in Romans 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. When you believe in Christ, the righteousness of God is yours. You possess it. God has imputed it, counted it to you. So that, Romans 3, 26, he might be just, that means righteous, And the justifier, that means righteousifier, just and the justifier of the one who, it doesn't say the one who works hard enough, the one who has faith in Jesus. It's so amazing, so simple, so simple. The righteousness of God revealed, and how is it revealed? That's the third thing in your bulletin. From faith for faith, from faith alone from start to finish. Here's how he says it comes about. Here's how it's revealed. Here's how it's counted to you. It's by faith. When he says from faith for faith, there's all kinds of theories and all kinds of commentaries on how exactly those words are supposed to function. And and, uh, some would say, well, that's talking about from faith for faith. That's talking about from the Old Testament faith to the New Testament faith. Uh, some would say that that's talking about, well, it's, it's just all of faith, or it's, uh, it's faith from this, faith from that, all kinds of theories. But here's, here's what I think that he's getting at. I think he's just saying, from faith to faith, as in every bit of it is faith. The beginning of it is faith, the end of it is faith, it is faith all the way through. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is, what is this faith? It's, it's, it is not the cause of our being right with God. It's not the cause of our justification. Why do I say that? Well, it's not like God is going around saying, who am I going to justify? Let me see who it is who has a good enough heart to believe. And then when I find that good heart that believes, then I'll count that person as righteous. Well, you know who God would find to have a good heart that would believe? Nobody, not even you. And I know how godly you are. Not even you. But what he does is he even gives the gift of faith. And he uses faith not as the ultimate cause of our justification, but as the instrument by which he counts us as righteous. 
He gives faith, and by faith, he counts us as right with him, and it is by faith from start to finish. Here's what it says in Romans 10.10. This is very simple. If some of this has not seemed simple to you, to listen, listen to this. With the heart, one believes and is justified. With the heart, one believes, resulting in that righteous standing before God. It's by believing. What is that faith? Well, it is not just understanding the gospel. You can understand it and know it in your head without actually believing it. And get this, it's not even just affirming the gospel. It's not even just agreeing with the gospel. You need to know that Jesus is the Son of God who lived a righteous life and died for our sins and rose from the dead. You need to know that it's by faith that you can be right with God and not by works. But just affirming those facts is not faith. It is a personal trust upon the person of Jesus Christ. I've heard it described before as, as like sitting in a chair. That when you sit down in a chair, you're having faith in that chair. You're having faith in your pew right now, those of you who are seated. You're having faith in that, that pew that it's going to hold you up. That's almost what it's like, but there's a problem there. You still have legs. What you do when you sit in a chair is not faith, it's statistical probability. You think to yourself, it is very unlikely. You don't necessarily think through this every time, but you kind of know it. It is very unlikely that this pew is going to give out under me when I sit on it. But you also know that if it does, you have legs. And most of you would be able to jump up out of it if it started to crack. When you get on a train, there's an element of faith. This train is going to go, it's going to get me there. But you know what the train has? Emergency exits. Because even though it's statistically probable that you are going to make it just fine, there's also a statistical chance that you won't. That's not faith. What faith is, faith in Jesus Christ is saying, I don't need any emergency exits. I don't need my legs anymore. I am resting 100% in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying it is statistically probable that he's my savior. I'm saying I forsake any hope of my own righteousness. Just like the Apostle Paul said, I count it as loss. Any chance that I had of standing in the day of judgment and pleading the cause that I did something, I throw it in the garbage and I cast my soul 100% upon Christ alone. That's what faith is. That doesn't mean that when I say 100%, I don't mean like if you feel like your faith needs to grow that you don't have faith. I mean, God gives measures of faith, but every bit of faith, faith like a mustard seed, Trusting that little mustard seed resting on Christ alone. It moves mountains and it brings eternal life. It brings eternal life. That's, that's what it says here. It is faith alone, from faith to faith. That's what it means. From the beginning to the end. It is not from faith to works. It is not from works to faith. It is from faith to faith. Every bit of it is through faith. A righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And it's not just the beginning, it is the ending. It is from faith, it is to faith. It says in Hebrews 12 that we look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. You hear that? You got from faith, he started it, he's the author, to faith. He's going to perfect it as we stand by sight in his glory. First, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, now that we have faith in Jesus, we walk by faith and not by sight. Being saved by God's grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone is often misunderstood as saying, well, if you believe that, then you're never going to do anything for God. Well, no, that's not true. <laughs> if you have faith in Christ, you're free to serve God. Instead of being a slave to sin like you used to be, you're going to walk by faith. If you're Noah, you're going to build that ark because you have been counted as righteous by faith before God. In 1 Peter 1, it says that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
but not just to be born again, but it says kept to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. See, it's not just by faith that you were once born again. It's by faith that you're being guarded until the last day and preserved. We are not of those who shrink back. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls, the author of Hebrews says. So it's from faith, it's to faith, it's all of faith, it's by faith alone. It is by faith alone. Do you hear this? Thank you. Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit your works. Not even a little bit just saying, well, my heart was in it. No, God's righteousness. Faith in the righteousness of Christ. From faith, for faith. And you know what? It leads to eternal life. That's the last phrase that's in here. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We have eternal life by faith alone. He's quoting there from Habakkuk 2.4. We prayed from that earlier in the service. As Habakkuk is having this back and forth with God, complaining to God first about the uh, the injustices, the sins of the Israelite people. And then God responding, don't worry, I'll take care of it by wiping them out with the Babylonians who are even more sinful. And, God, and Habakkuk comes back to God and says, why would you do that? That doesn't seem like a good solution. And this is part of God's answer is that even as he's going to allow them to go into captivity, that the righteous will live by faith. And the New Testament picks that up here in Romans and in Galatians and in Hebrews and says this is a picture, this is a type, the rescue from Babylon is a type that is pointing forward to the antitype, to the substance that the shadow was being cast from, that it is all about Christ. That this rescue is pointing to the great rescue which is in Christ and who is it that will live? It is those who are of faith. It's those who are of faith. I should have pointed you to a footnote earlier, and, and I always tell you you should read the footnotes. In the ESV, if you're looking at the ESV, which the Pew Bibles are ESV, it says, on, from faith for faith, it says, or beginning and ending in faith. And I think that's pretty good. And then here, as it says, the righteous shall live by faith, the footnote says, or the one who by faith is righteous shall live. And I think that's pretty good. I think that's what Paul is saying here. I think that's what he means by the words and the grammatical constructions here. I think he's saying here, those who are counted as righteous in God's sight by faith will live. And what that points us to, what this shows us, is that eternal life is by faith in Jesus. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever works hard enough That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. He's saying exactly the same thing that it said in Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. Those who are righteous in God's sight by faith will have eternal life. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We learn from a very early age to know that death is serious. People deal with that in different ways psychologically. A lot of people try just not to think about it. Some people dwell on it. Some people worry about it. Some people lie awake at night worrying about it. Some people just try to wish it away and pretend and even use all kinds of substances to try to ignore that it's coming. Even our four-year-old daughter thinks so much about it because we have our cat who we had to bury. And now she thinks, what happens when I die? And we all learn to think about this. But here's the good news. Guys, this is, a, this is the universal human problem. The wages of sin is death. You know what we need? The free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Yet shall he live. 
This was not a new doctrine in the New Testament. He's going to point out in Romans chapter 4 that this is the way that God has always saved people. It's the way God saved Abraham. He says, what does the scripture say? Abraham, this is back in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God has only and always and ever saved people by faith. Always. Abraham, all the way down to you and me, by faith alone. Back before Abraham, too, Romans, Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews 11 points out, all the way back to Abel. It's been by faith alone. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Guys, you see, sometimes I read that and I think to myself, well, who is really ungodly? What a silly thing for me to think. That's talking about me. That's talking about you. You are the ungodly one who you need need to be justified. You cannot be justified by your works, but God justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Guys, you know what you need to do? When you think of that problem that mankind has of death, don't trust in medicine. Don't trust in cryonics. Don't trust in whatever scheme Elon Musk might come up with to try to preserve humanity for eternity. Don't trust in your bucket list either. Don't trust in the idea that you're going to get all that you can out of life and that's going to be enough for you. Guys, you're going to stand before God on the day of judgment. You're going to stand before God on the day of judgment and what we have offered to us now is the free gift of the righteousness that we must have in order to live on that day. And that righteousness is Jesus's. And you receive it by faith. Believe in him and you will have eternal life. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have not left us to uh, perish in our sins. You have loved the world and sent your son, given your son to die for us according to the scriptures, to be buried and to be raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God, I pray that those who are here who don't have faith today, God, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment And I pray that by the gift and the grace of the Holy Spirit, that you would turn them to Jesus, grant them faith, grant them to love Christ, grant them to hope in Christ, grant them to throw away any hope that they had in their own goodness or any other system, and grant them the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. God, I thank you that you have given us this life in Christ that is from faith for faith, from faith from start to finish. God, I pray that you would help us to run well and to walk by faith and keep us and preserve us by faith to that eternal reward that we have in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.